You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Guys, I am stoked for what we're going to do today. So we are back in the Gospel of Mark. It's been a hot minute. We took a break over the last month, and uh, we have just a great, just a great opportunity this morning to jump back into it. So. Dan Grunder is going to be preaching for us today, and hopefully you guys all know Dan. Dan has been going through Red Tree's eldership vetting process for this entire year. He's 10 months in, and him and his wife haven't left the faith or our church, so we're doing, we're doing pretty good. Y- yet. <laughs> There's still another month. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, part of our eldership process, guys, we, you guys know this about Red Tree because... We talk about it, and because I trust that you guys have been in prayer over the Grunder family in this season um, as they walk through what God is calling their family to, and as they discern, and, and our elders spend time discerning gifting and qualifications and those things. We, we take the pastorate seriously at Red Tree, because we think the Bible takes it seriously. And so we take our time, and we move slow, and we walk with families and walk with men who who are processing through that call over a long period of time to let things come to the surface, good and bad, and see strengths and weaknesses. And part of what the scripture says is really important about a pastor is the ability to parse the word for the people, to actually take the word of God as has been revealed and to walk through it, to, to discuss and clarify and guide people to the truth of Jesus in his word. Uh, And so we are excited that Dan gets to do that with you guys today. I want to say, just as one of your pastors, having having known Dan a long time, I'm I'm not going to tell the whole story, but Dan was definitely a volunteer worker in my youth group when when I was in in middle school or high school or whenever, which is awesome. But... um, Guys, it's, it's been such a privilege to walk with Dan in this season and to know um, the respect and the heart and the humility that he has brought to the word. You guys are going to get to bear the fruit of his faithfulness this morning. So I would ask that you would, this morning, that you would join with your elders as, as we're walking with the Grunder family to just go, man, what is God calling you guys to? This is part of that process. And so please, like, sit in this. We are all on your team. We're so excited for this to happen. So let's be the best audience Dan will ever preach the gospel to. Who's getting saved at the end? Can I get volunteers? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but, but seriously, seriously, this is, this is a privilege that we get to, to be in this with you, man. So let me pray over you, and I'll hand it over. Jesus, thank you for Dan. Thank you uh, for Sarah, for Abby, for Noah, for this um, amazing family, God. Thank you for the gift of bringing them into our church. Um, God, thank you for um, Dan's humility and faithfulness in pursuing your calling for his life and his family. God, this morning we ask um, that Dan would not speak a word. We ask that he would be your vessel, that you would speak, that you would encourage and remind us all of the truth, that we would leave here convicted and connected with you. Jesus, we love you. We trust you for this. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Uh, humbling introduction. Um, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. So, we are in Mark 9 again. Uh, last time we were in Mark 9, it was back on August 26th. Uh, Sam took us through the verses 38 through 41. In those verses, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. The disciples, however, were not understanding it. They weren't getting it. 
They wanted immediate temporal relief from their circumstances, Roman rule, etc. God, though, was bringing eternal life, eternal relief, rather, through Jesus, who taught things they'd never heard, that the kingdom was about serving others, losing in the sight of man. An overarching principle from, from this sermon for me was that God does his work and always gets his own when his name is invoked. That is why when the gospel is proclaimed, it can be presented in a multitude of ways, even poorly, and for the wrong reasons, but God uses it. Today we will look at more of Jesus' teachings. Open with me, if you would, to Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. We'll read those verses in just a moment. Um, before we do that, though, and as you're looking up those verses, um, I, I do need to open in prayer. So um, pray with me, if, if you would. Dear Lord, thank you for this, uh, this privilege um, <laughs> to bring your word uh, that's been humbling over the last um, several weeks, months. Um, as, I, as I think about uh, what it means to uh, to preach from your word. And Lord, just pray like Sam said, I echo that um, these are my words, they're, they're your words, that I'm just a vessel. You uh, speak through me as you will. And um, help me to believe, truly believe, that uh, as long as your name is being invoked, that your spirit is at work, um, that you're more powerful. And uh, so it doesn't really matter today um, how well I do or how poorly I do, but as long as I stay faithful to the text and uh, and just give you the glory, because um, this isn't about me; it's about your word. Thank you for for what you're about to teach us this morning. Thank you for what you taught me in preparation. Um, I just thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. Thank you for those who have lifted me up in prayers. I prepare. Um, and uh, for their words of encouragement as well, because uh, the human part of me uh, <laughs> so sorely needs that, because um, I'm weak. Um, but Lord, you are strong. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ooh, sorry. This is going to be emotional for me, and uh, so I'm just warning you, there are a couple periods in here where uh, my first time through, I, I uh, got choked up. So if that happens... Uh, I'm 44. It's embarrassing, but I'm I'm not afraid to be embarrassed by that anymore, like I was in my 20s and 30s, and and last week. Love you, Woo! Love you too. All right. So, uh, Mark 9:42 through 50. Uh, read with me, if you would, please. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
For those of you who like to take notes and specifically write down the points, uh, let me iterate those for you here real quickly. Point number one, to not cause others to sin. Point number two, remove your roots of sin. Point number three, the Holy Spirit in us leads us to godliness if we deny ourselves. So I'm going to read verse 42 again, and then we'll, I'll discuss that a little bit. So 42 again, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This verse is not explicitly about children or limited to children in its prohibition against leading others to sin. The age of the person is not the point. Jesus is using physical immaturity as an example, but is actually referring to spiritual immaturity. Believers are frequently like children, little in their faith, small in their maturity, and vulnerable. Believers are to be protected, not encouraged to, and certainly not to be led into sin. I think it's far too easy for us to think that we are not responsible in any way for other people's decisions and actions. This exhortation in verse 42, though, of Jesus should cause us to be more thoughtful about how our attitudes, actions, and words may impact others. Why may we not want to be responsible for others' actions? Because we don't want to be inconvenienced. We might say, well, why shouldn't I be able to fill in the blank, whatever it might be? It's not a problem for me. If it's a problem for someone else, they need to just deal with it on their own. In our culture, we're so accustomed to pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps that we expect others to do the same. They should know better and do better. But where is the self-denial and sacrifice in that? In the verses before this, before today's text, from back in August, before the September No Bench series, we have Jesus telling his disciples to cool their jets about who's the greatest in the kingdom. That the first shall be last, the last shall be first, and if they want to be first, they must serve. What the disciples didn't know then, and certainly didn't see clearly until much later, is that Jesus was the first, is the first, will be the first, and yet his example was to lay down all his rights, to be obedient to the Father, and serve mankind by being our scapegoat. Our punishment was put on him. If you do not remember uh, or have not studied the Old Testament practice of scapegoating, uh, which is transferring the people's sin onto a substitute, I would encourage you to seek it out and study it. It's a beautiful foreshadowing of Christ humbling himself to be our scapegoat. Nonetheless, we should not choose to exercise our right to do what we have the freedom to do or if we know or suspect it is going to cause someone else to stumble. Imagine, just imagine having a big rock tied around your neck and then be thrown into the deep sea. Point number two, remove your roots of sin, verses 43 through 48. I'll read those again as well. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin... Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These verses implore us uh, not to sin, obviously. Even to the point of cutting off your limbs or gouging out your eye. This is not to be taken literally, but it is to be taken seriously. How do we know that? Because it's repeated in three different ways. 
It's customary throughout Scripture to emphasize something important by repeating it. As you think back over Scripture, there are ample examples of this. So to repeat it three times, it obviously is intended to put sharp focus on the importance of keeping oneself from sinning. Not just keeping oneself from sinning, but in no uncertain terms. This is not a reaction to your sin as a punishment. For how would you keep from entering hell since punishment is for something already done? But it is proactive in its intent and purpose. If you cut off your hand, you are prevented from using it to sin against God. This is proactive, planning in advance to preempt sin. Lop it off, gouge it out. Why so graphic of terms? Well, because the consequence of sin is nothing to take lightly. If the consequence is not at all light, then why in the world uh, would the encouragement to avoid it be anything but heavy and coarse and graphic? Early in our parenting, Sarah and I, when Noah and Abby were very young children, we picked up a practice along the way to keep our kids safe from a few dangerous things. As all parents know, and anyone who has watched Crawling Infants, there is a perverse attraction by babies to electrical outlets. It's like moths to light at night for some reason. They can be playing with the most amazing toy, but at some point they get bored, they look around, and decide to head straight for an outlet. Something about it interests them, perhaps just curiosity, since it stands out so starkly at their level against a boring flat wall. How can I speak so familiarly about things that are at the eye level of a baby, you might be wondering to yourself right now. (laughs) Well, (laughs) for those of you still straying to see over the person or even the seat back in front of you, um, I happen to be short. Regardless, babies are drawn to electrical outlets. Electrical outlets, by their nature, are deadly, immensely useful, but deadly. So Sarah and I would yell out in warning, danger, very loudly when one of our kids were crawling toward an outlet. Just yell it out. This would, of course, startle them uh, quite severely, uh, you might imagine. So severely that that maybe they would cry, hypothetically. We would pick them up, comfort them. I mean, we weren't monsters after all. Uh, Do we want them to cry? Of course not. But the consequences being so severe made the practice seem very reasonable. They both learned very quickly not to go near outlets. I was going to bring, bring a hatchet and a piece of wood and ask if anybody wanted to take it and literally cut off their hand or foot. Uh, inviting all to come up, form a single line, enforce no pushing or shoving, uh, perhaps implement a numbering system or a lottery to keep the, uh, the line civil. But I imagine there would be no takers for that. And I don't need the legal trouble of bringing a hatchet into a public school, even on a Sunday. So I left that at home. But you get the idea. Okay, so if it's not to be taken literally, how do we deal with it in the way that it's intended? Well, how about severing whatever it is that we know leads us into sin that we make excuses for. In the movie Fireproof, the protagonist, and I use this word um, because uh, either I didn't see the movie or don't know the character's name or I've forgotten it, um, but he smashes and destroys his, his computer equipment with an axe or a sledgehammer because of his struggle with pornography. That is the example of what this passage is referring to. Amputation, severe. 
taking the, kids glo- taking the kid gloves off and dealing with the problem. Get real with the issue. Stop playing with matches in a room full of gunpowder. We don't need the external help to get the blaze going. In Genesis 4-7, it says that sin lies at the door and waits, but you should rule over it. It reminds me of an analogy of our hearts being like uh, a house. But instead of sin waiting on the outside of the house, I believe after 44 years of life that sin waits in the very next room, every next room. We have seen the enemy, and it is us. It is in us. I remember Jeff Neville quoting someone, I think it was Piper, pretty sure, uh, that our hearts are idol factories. We really don't need any help finding ways to disobey God. It all comes so naturally for us. So much so, whoop, so much so that we desire to minimize it. But we really can't do that when we know the challenge from Jesus himself is to dig up the root of our sins and obliterate them. What is it you need to dramatically and finally sever from your life? We all have things that lead to idolatrous sins. Cut it off, gouge it out, whatever it takes, remove it. This is the admonition from Christ. Put off and put on. One of the core ways to help get out of a repeating sin pattern in our lives is to put off sinful behavior and put on in its place godly, uh, godly behavior, something holy. If you just create a hole where sin used to be, well, we're, we're awfully good about filling that hole with something else sinful because that's who we are and that's what we do. But there is hope. Hope is found in godliness, in holiness, in abiding with Christ. This is the game changer we all want. Probably most of us have experienced that. And yet we do not chase after abiding with Christ with our entire beings because we are comfortable and complacent. Complacent with our West County lives. I do not think we can stress it enough that we have been lulled into bad habits of filling our time with things that don't matter. Entertainment ranging from simple to extreme. When what we really need is to spend more time abiding with Christ. Not out of duty or obligation, or to put a check mark on a list, but because while this world has everything we could ever want, it does not offer what we need. We all chase after affording things that will be destroyed eventually, rather than taking what we truly need at no relative cost to us. It'd be one thing if there was a point to our madness, but there is not. We are just duped. We like to think we aren't, but we are. Do we know that we're in a war? This very moment, there's an enemy counting on the fact that we were lulled into complacency. And the only time we were shaken from our slumber is when a defining moment happens in life. Usually it takes some kind of inconvenience, and typically one beyond the garden variety of inconveniences that happen to us on a regular basis. Customers are a pain, our boss, uh, maybe coworkers, job is too challenging, not challenging enough, working too many hours, not enough hours, or struggles with finances, relationships, legal matters, unmet expectations. The list could go on and on. However, it can take a major issue for us to realize that we cannot achieve a solution ourselves, that we cannot simply try harder, influence more, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and get ourselves out of whatever predicament we find ourselves. Far too often it takes a major problem for us to give up on our self-reliance, fall on our faces, and beg God to help us with whatever battle we face. But how often are we looking for merely stasis, to return to a point where we're comfortable because that is what we think this life is about? 
This life is not about comfort over the long haul. The most we get is 90 to 100 years or so. That sounds like a lot, but it's over in a hurry. Before we know it, we can no longer do the things we used to do physically or mentally. But this life, uh, this life is but a vapor and gone in an instant. Fighting and striving to keep it comfortable is a fool's task, and we are all guilty of acting like fools. Thinking we are, comfort- we, we are in comfortable, peaceful times is dangerous because someone is always waiting, biding their time, planning and plotting harm. War and rumors of war are all around us and have been a part of all world history. Someone is always bent on taking what isn't theirs, killing and destroying. We see it in the news all the time. The cycles of this world continue this pattern with no variance over millennia. The world has everything in it, and uh, sorry, the world and everything in it is following the lead of the prince of this world. Satan is real. He knows he's in a battle all the time, and he's counting on us to be lulled into a peaceful complacency. His plan is always, every day, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, to steal, kill, and destroy. If we are complacent, believing the lie he spends for us, then we are little resistance to him. I'm referring to a spiritual battle here, but uh, let me give some physical examples as metaphors. Historical examples. In Nazi Germany, most Germans were peaceful. They really were. But the Nazis drove the agenda, and their agenda was to steal, kill, and destroy. 60 million people died, 6 million Jews in genocide, 14 million total in concentration camps. In Russia, 100 years ago, most Russians were peaceful. Those driving the agenda, however, were not. Um, Their agenda was to steal, kill, and destroy. 20 million people died, maybe many times that. During Chinese dictatorships, most Chinese were peaceful. 70 million people killed. In Japan, leading up to World War II, most Japanese were peaceful. Yet 12 million were killed in Southeast Asia, mostly with bayonets and shovels. Seriously, shovels. On September 11th, 2001, there were roughly 2.3 million Muslims in the U.S. Many professed to be peaceful. Yet it only took 19 to steal, kill, and destroy, killing about 3,000 and causing billions of dollars of destruction. I did not intend this to be a political statement or about a religion. It is a reminder that we get lulled into thinking all our issues, whether big or small, are flesh and blood, and they're not. Sure, the flesh and blood seemingly carry out the actions we perceive with our senses, but they are only physically acting out the ploy of the devil, whose main goal, again, is to steal, kill, and destroy. This is the war we are in, and it is real, and it is here, now. We do not frequently enough give much thought or credence to these principalities and kingdoms that are poised against us. How many times a day do we consider the spiritual war around us? How often are you in prayer about the spiritual war around us? Why? Are you far too numb to it? I am. These principalities and kingdoms have no hope. Their eternity is set where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worldly around us are aware of this lack of hope, though they put it in different terms in order to soften and spin it. They try to fill the void of hopelessness, the God-shaped hole with vices and coping mechanisms that deny that there is anything serious, as serious, as an unquenchable fire as a result of their rejection of the only fix to their problems, namely Jesus Christ. So let's talk about hell for a moment, separation from God. 
Imagine what it will be like for someone who dies and has not believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They arrive at the throne of judgment, dressed in their finest works and efforts. We all know those to be nothing but filthy rags. Yes, even their biblical morality is filthy rags, just like ours. They catch a glimpse of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. Now, I don't remember how to do the Shekinah shimmy that, that Jeff Neville did, uh, but I remember he did it. It was kind of like a shiver or something like that. I don't remember exactly. Um, but uh, I remember it was funny. Anyway, they, they catch a glimpse of God's glory in all its amazing, truly awesome splendor. We use that word awesome for all kinds of things, right? Great experiences, great vacations, great meals, great times with family and friends. Those are awesome. But this is another category of awesome that we cannot begin to fully appreciate or imagine. It's the kind of awesome that will kill you, literally. God had Moses stand in a crevice on the mountain, covered up the crevice and passed by before him, uh, before he uncovered the crevice, so that Moses could only see the back of God, because no sinner could look at the face of our awesome God and live. That kind of awesome. For you foodies, yes, even better than a fantastic steak or veggie burger or whatever. So back to my attempt to paint a word picture of what a lost person might experience once their bodies die. They catch a glimpse of God's glory in all its amazing, truly awesome splendor. This becomes the first time that they actually know what awesome really means. They realize in that moment that the party with the sinners they thought, they were, uh, they thought hell was going to be is not going to go well. All they ever wanted to fulfill them is right there, right now, right at hand, yet they have rejected it at enmity from God for all their days. All of the loneliness, all of the emptiness, all of the longing, yet not knowing, was right here before them, but it was too late. The book of life is opened up in front of them. Their name is not to be found, and they are exiled for all eternity. Complete joy denied. They are cast out, never to experience communion with the God... <sighs> They had rejected all their lives. Who is now rejecting them? They are separated from all that is truly awesome, from him who is truly awesome. All the hope that ever was, all the completeness, all joy so close, so close, for an instant, never to be realized, never to be experienced, complete and eternal separation from the Creator God, who with love created them in His image, to see that image obfuscated, smudged, and ruined by sin, to have a plan for restoration of that image, an improvement to that image in the person of Christ, His righteousness. No wonder as believers we will sing His praises forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Okay, that's heavy. Um, and that's not even to mention uh, the fire that is never quenched and the worm that does not die in hell. But this is the reality of what sin earns all of us. Even the best we can muster earns this fate. This is the crash and burn scenario we all face until we are saved, by, uh, saved from it by Jesus, brought back from death to life. The, serious, no, the seriousness of this is why Jesus gives us the limb amputation in sight-mangling hyperbole in verses 48 through 43. 
Sin is anti-God. What we earn from sin, its wages, will deliver us in proper judgment to a place that is anti-God. As in, God is not there. Eternal separation from God. Point number three, the Holy Spirit in us leads us to godliness if we deny ourselves. So I'm going to read verses 49 and 50 for us. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Scripture, as we know, should not be taken out of context. As the Bible answer man used to say, text taken out of context is is pretext. Meaning it is used to prove a point, it is not meant to prove. This is the reason Red Tree teaches expositionally, verse by verse with a keen eye to context. Context of the immediate scripture before and after, in the context of truth throughout the entirety of scripture, and whenever possible in historical content. Context. Jesus' use of the word everyone in verse 49 does not mean every last person ever, at least in the way that I'm interpreting these verses for this explanation, which is everyone is everyone who receives the Holy Spirit. Who, rece- who received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? It was the believers, those who, uh, the true followers of Jesus, in a very real and powerful and observable way, as a flame that came down and rested on them. The flame represented the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is represented as a flame or fire is common in many passages throughout Scripture. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Mark's reference to this saying by Jesus is repeated in very similar forms in other Gospels as well. The Gospels say that this unsalty salt is good for nothing. It will be thrown out and trampled by men. We can refer back to the preceding verses in Mark 9, before 42, which we studied prior to the excellent, excellent and challenging September series, No Bench, where John tells of rebuking the exorcist, casting out demons in Jesus' name, um, but he was not a disciple, so the disciples tried to stop him. To which Jesus taught them that no godly work in Jesus' name is done by anyone but God. Think about it for a moment. Evil does not drive out evil. Therefore, this man, while completely selfish, while for completely selfish means, was driving out demons in Jesus' name, something the disciples had trouble with several verses earlier in Mark 9, to which Jesus' teaching was, you can't, you can't do this. You can't drive out this demon. This is, only happens through prayer, reliance on God, for it is God's power, not man's power, to do these things. Despite this, the disciples then admonish this man who is not one of them, and they were wrong. They were in the mind frame that they were important because they were disciples. Hence the argument about who was greater in the kingdom. So how does this relate to saltiness? Follow me in this, please. Saltiness is being seasoned by fire, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit does his work through those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not. But some will lose their saltiness and stray from the power of God to do God's work. What am I saying exactly? I'm saying that Jesus is warning them against trying to do things according to their own power. Why? It didn't work for the disciples when they got ahead of themselves in God's work and tried driving out demons in their own way. But the man who 
was not one of them, was able to drive out demons because he did rely on the name of Jesus and therefore the power of God. The second part of verse 50, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The admonition here is to keep in alignment with God, uh, to abide in him, acknowledging that we are not able, but he is. That is our sacrifice to God, to deny ourselves like Christ did in his entire time on earth, remaining salty by living life in his name for his glory. If we are not peace, if we are not at peace with one another, we need to consider the ways in which we have lost our saltiness, where we are, we are not living sacrificially. So in summation, uh, point number one, do not cause others to sin. Believers are frequently like children, little in their faith, small in their maturity, and vulnerable. Believers are to be protected, not encouraged to, and certainly not to be led into sin. Point two, remove your roots of sin. Be proactive, planning in advance to preempt sin. Sin is serious. Hell is real and terrifying, an eternal separation from an awesome God. Point three, the Holy Spirit in us leads us to godliness if we deny ourselves. Our job as believers is to believe, to be a living sacrifice to God, and to be at peace with each other. Are your freedoms in Christ an excuse to be oblivious to how your attitudes, actions, or words may be encouraging others to sin? Are you living or speaking things that are not true, and by doing so, being a bad influence on others? Are you blatantly engaged in activity that causes others to sin? or participating in others' sins. How about your own behavior? What severe amputation of sin roots do you need to make in your own life? How willing are you to destroy things, even things that may seem innocuous, or, um, yeah, uh, but are lying in wait to cause you to stumble? If we are denying ourselves sacrificing our way for his, how can we not be at peace with one another? Who do you need to get right with so there can be peace? Is there someone you need to make peace with today or this week? Do not put it off. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Thank you so much, Dan. Join me in prayer real quick. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for this time and this space. God, thank you for uh, the privilege of hearing from you, from your word. God, I, uh, I, just, I just needed to be reminded this morning that, that you care about sin. That as much as much as you are, you are grace and you are love and you are patience and you are long suffering. You, you don't desire to see your creation, whom you love and whom you desired, mired in curse. God, may we, may we be a people who care about that. May we see it in our own lives and see it in the world around us, and may we, may we battle against that. God, may we be a people who are actually aware of the reality of judgment. And may that, um, that, that awe and awareness and, 
combined with your mercy and your love, may this fuel us to engagement in your kingdom. God, we need you this morning. So we ask that you would you would meet with us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.